Preparation, part two from John chapter 19, verses 38 to 42. Now, in our series in the Gospel of John, this morning we come to the end of chapter 19. Now, this chapter has taken us seven weeks to get through because we really had to get through some very crucial points and themes in this wonderful, marvelous chapter of John. Now, taking our cue from John, who highlights Preparation Day three times in this chapter, because this is the day when when, when Jesus died, so we want to dig a little deeper as to what, apart from the obvious, he is trying to tell us. So that's what we did last week and what we're trying to do here this morning. So last week we looked at what happened on the cross after Jesus gave up his spirit. This is when he was in the hands of his enemies, the Jewish authorities and the Roman soldiers. And in the verses before us, he is in the hands of unlikely friends as they prepare his body and they lay him in the tomb. They are indeed unlikely friends because they were members of the Sanhedrin who were the ones who condemned Jesus. So with our theme still being preparation, what are these verses then trying to teach us? First of all, prepared to stand from verses 38 and 39. And this is what it says. It says, later Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, this is an important point. G- Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. It is interesting that all the Gospels mention Joseph of Arimathea in connection with the burial of Jesus. He doesn't p- appear in any other instance. Now, as a member of the powerful Sanhedrin, Luke also tells us that Joseph opposed the unjust treatment of Jesus by the other members during his trial. He was a man who was looking, it tells us, for the kingdom of God. We're also told that he was a a wealthy man, which meant he could actually afford the garden tomb for the burial of Jesus. The other person mentioned here is Nicodemus, who we met earlier in the Gospel of John in chapter 3. He was a Pharisee and also a member of the Sanhedrin. Now, he came to Jesus and had a private lesson, a private encounter with the master who told him that he needed to be born again. The fact that he came at night tells us that he was also scared of what people might think. In chapter 7, we also told that he stood up for Jesus at the Sanhedrin and and questioned the, the legality of the process by which they were accusing Jesus without first hearing from him, which which he thought, and it was, a travesty of justice. However, John the Apostle in his gospel might have also had these two in mind when he said some strong words in chapter 12. And this is what he said in chapter 12, verses 42 
and 43. Please listen. He says, yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him, believed in Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would put, be put out of the synagogue. For they, they what? They loved human praise more than praise from God. Now just to be clear, timidity and cowardice is never praised. Not in the world we live in, not in history, and certainly not in the Bible. However, boldness and the courage to stand for one's convictions is indeed lauded. As long, of course, as it, as, as it isn't reckless or, or foolish. And when I'm talking that, I'm thinking of Samson, who definitely didn't lack courage, but he, uh, he was a bit too reckless and foolish. So here we have both Joseph and Nicodemus coming out into the clear. Perhaps they, in the past they came out at night, but now they're in the clear with a brave and public act. By identifying and, and showing allegiance to Jesus, um, they were identifying with him in the midst, in the context of nobody else doing so. Uh, they were taking a risk. This is the very point that I suppose some people will say, well, it was a little bit too late. They should have come out before when he was alive. But the truth is that by doing this at this time, they still had nothing to gain and quite possibly much to lose from doing so. Even Jesus' disciples remember, had fled at this stage. The only one who remained was was John and, and the women before the cross. We can only surmise that something happened inside of these two fellows. When once they were so gripped by fear that they would not openly confess Jesus, now they boldly go to Pilate and using their their authority as as leaders as Jewish leaders they they requested that they be given a chance to bury and and properly bury the body of Jesus now, and when they do retrieve the body they give Jesus not just a proper Jewish burial but they give Jesus the burial of a king which he was We are told by John that Joseph was a disciple, a follower. The same thing is not said of Nicodemus, but perhaps he also became one after his encounter with the Lord, which prompted him to do some further investigation and maybe follow Jesus from afar. I'm sure that they didn't fully understand what was going on? I mean, how could they possibly understand the implications of the atonement? And uh, they couldn't possibly conceive the whole matter of the resurrection. They didn't have that hope. But what they did get was 
the love of Christ, that even as he was hanging on the cross, he was still interceding for his enemies before the Father to forgive them. And that love, his calm, his composure, his care, that must have had an impact. And I think that even uh, Joseph and Nicodemus, they would have, that could have been quite possibly been one of the ones who were standing before the cross and listened to Jesus' words even then. This is the same love of Christ that enables us to die to self and to live for Jesus, to move us from cowardice to courage, from fear to boldness. Perhaps you and I, I don't know, can be a little impatient at times with those who are closet, let's call them closet followers of Jesus. Those who believe, sincerely believe, but are not prepared to stand up for what they believe. They don't, they're not prepared to stand up for their faith. We ask, perhaps, why are you still there when you should be here, already mature, already proclaiming Christ, no matter the cost. Well, there are some biblical examples. Uh, One of them was Elijah. Remember Elijah? After his amazing feat on top of Mount Carmel, when he slaughtered all those priests, and then suddenly he was overcome with fear. Why? Well, because queen was going to persecute him. But not only that, because he thought he was the only one who was standing up to the pagan, to the pagan gods, who was standing up for what he believed, who was honoring God. And so he went and hid in a cave and, and basically just given up. But then God reminded him of 7,000 who did not bow, but obviously they didn't believe they they didn't stand up in public they stood up in secret god knew them elijah didn't know them he never heard of them but he wasn't alone that's the point and we perhaps have little time for deniers of jesus like peter but jesus was patient with him and i can only attribute the the rise in courage and and boldness to to do god's work in us, it's, it's not something that we ourselves can work up to. Like suddenly you go to some seminar and you're G'd up. Yes, I'm going to stand up for what, what I believe. No, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. Rest assured, God will finish the good work he has started as he equips us and prepares us, there's that word, prepares us to stand up for his name. Let me ask you. What are you prepared to do for Jesus? Are you now willing to stand up for him when it matters? We are living in tumultuous days. And these days will call for courage. And as Christians, we cannot use the excuse that we were not prepared for this. God has been preparing us for a long time. We need to pray for the courage to stand for his name when it really matters, and it matters now.
Our second point, prepared his body from verses 39 to 40. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 35 kilograms. And taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. And this was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. Now, if Joseph supplied the grave, then Nicodemus supplies the myrrh and the aloes. Now, these were rich men. So the body of Jesus and the spices uh, would have been carried by their servants who would have been with them. Remember that on the cross, the the, the Lamb of God hung there. He was battered and, and bruised, but not one of his bones were broken. The fact that Jesus was was all there, his body was all there in one piece. This made it easier for his burial. Now the Jews, it was not their custom to embalm dead bodies as, for example, the, the Egyptians did. But the spices were used to mask the smell as the body begins to decompose. So they covered linen cloths uh, around um, with with the with the myrrh and the aloe and wrapped Jesus in it, and then the ex, the excess of the the myrrh and the aloes would be placed in in different spots in the tomb as a love offering. Now this was no small amount; it was thirty five kilograms of very expensive, very expensive spices. Where We're not sure specifically about how much it would have costed, but someone has given it an estimate of between $150,000 to $200,000 in today's money. It was an extravagant amount and much more than was certainly needed to, to anoint Jesus, unless, of course, you were doing it for a king. And that's what Jesus was, a king. Now, Let's recall the time when Mary uh, did something very special for Jesus with some very expensive perfume as well. Uh, In John chapter 12, and the other Gospels also record this this marvellous episode. And uh, in John chapter 12, verse 3, this is what we read. Mary took about half a litre of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And when Judas, at, uh, who was a disciple at that time, he protested at what he thought was a waste, then uh, the Gospel of Matthew, this is the way that Matthew um, records Jesus' response in Matthew 26, verse 12. When she poured this perfume, this is Jesus' words, When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it, Jesus says, and there's that word again, to prepare me for burial. To prepare me for burial. The big difference here is that Mary showed Jesus her extravagant love while he was still alive. And even when she was chastised for such a waste, she didn't care because she was doing it 
as, as an act of love for her friend, her saviour. And she, only she would hear the wonderful words of commendation from Jesus. Like I said, let's not be too hard on, on Joseph and Nicodemus. It was, it was God's plan, God's sovereign plan that they would come at this time and look after the body of our precious Savior. They did the job that God prepared them to do. Yet, yet the valuable lesson remains. We need to do our best, break, as it were, our best for the living. All too often, and I have witnessed this, all too often we wait until somebody has died to show the appreciation that we fail to show in life. Is there someone who comes to your mind? A friend or a a family member who would be honoured and encouraged by an expression of your love and appreciation. Well, what are you waiting for? Then do something to show it while the person is still alive. Don't wait for tomorrow. Tomorrow could be too late. Then we move to our next point. Prepared the tomb. Prepared the tomb. Verses 41 and 42. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation. And since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Jesus was unjustly executed for sedition. Now, normally those men who would have been buried in the burial site, uh, there was a burial site reserved for criminals, and it was located outside the city. And this is where the other thieves who were on either side of Jesus, this is where they would have ended up. But Joseph and Nicodemus, with their extra pull, convinced Pilate to let them have Jesus' body so they could at least honour him with the burial that he truly deserved. Now, the other important thing here is that the, the, the proximity from the place where the cross was to the place where Jesus was, was buried in the tomb. This is important because it was the Sabbath and it was about to begin. And the work of burial needed to be completed before sundown. Now, as Joseph was well off, his, he had uh, an extensive garden, and he also had a tomb which would have been freshly cut in the stone and made ready for himself and his family when the time came to die. But God had other plans. Just we read the passage, our first reading this morning was the way in which Jesus requisitioned the donkey so he could ride into Jerusalem. Here, the Heavenly Father requisitions the tomb because that's where he was going to lay his son in. Something that should be clear to all of us is that The Lord's burial 
represented not the last stage of his humiliation, but in fact, this is the turning point. This is the first stage of his exaltation. Let's be clear. This this is the, the beginning of his triumph, his vindication as Lord and King. And this was a type of tomb that was fit for a king. As Isaiah says in Isaiah 53 verse 9, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. So by placing Jesus in Joseph's tomb, they were yet again fulfilling prophecy. Though he died with the wicked, Joseph and Nicodemus would not allow his body to be disposed with the wicked. They both gave Jesus the burial of a king because that is who he is. In these days, uh, there's quite a lot of images from around the world as to what is happening as a response of, to this, to this uh, virus. And I have come across some harrowing images from the country of Ecuador in Latin America where the number of people who are dying of COVID-19 are simply uh, horrendous. Uh, they're not even getting registered. That's how bad it is. People uh, are simply dragging out the dead into the streets and leaving them there for somebody to be collected. And they could be there for a day, three, four, five days before someone picks them up. Absolutely horrendous. And, and these scenes might be foreign to us here, but these scenes are, in fact, common during devastation and during wartime, where society is simply overwhelmed with death and destruction. And perhaps for this generation, this current generation, where we live in, in Australia, uh, the problem has always been somewhere else, hasn't it? But now the problem comes close to home. This is unprecedented. This is worldwide. It is a lot closer to home. It is supposed to make us feel uncomfortable. Because somewhere, it wasn't just somewhere that people were suffering. Now they're suffering right next to us. And it's confronting. And it jolts us. It's supposed to. Now, I have stood before many graves over the past years. I just did a funeral for a friend this past Friday. And there is a, there is a dignity attached to how we say goodbye to our loved ones. I've done funerals from the funerals of an infant to the grave of an elderly. In each case, their remains were treated with respect and dignity, just like Jesus' body was treated with dignity and respect. The Apostle Paul exhorts us here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 14. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 14. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. Notice what he says, those who sleep in death. Those who sleep get woken up. So that you 
who, that's us, you do not grieve like the rest of mankind. What's the difference? They have no hope. For we believe, Paul says, that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him, in him. The moment that Jesus died, his spirit was surrendered into the hands of the Father. His body was laid in a tomb in the garden. By our Lord being buried, descending into the grave, he was dignifying all who have died. At the same time, he was sanctifying the graves of all of those who would die believing in his name, having the hope of the resurrection. And Paul said that this is what it would be like for every believer in Jesus Christ at the moment of death. Paul said, this is what it's like to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. What was true in the Lord's case will be true for everyone who trusts in him. His death is the pattern for our own eventual death. The meaning of his burial the meaning of our own burial. Also worth highlighting that at the last day, what is crucial is, I suppose, not where you are buried, with the rich or with the poor, in a mausoleum or cremated. It it really is, I suppose, it doesn't matter all that much. What matters is whether you were buried with Christ and repented and believed. This is what matters. And that's the words from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6. Our last point this morning. Verse 41, again, prepared for the resurrection. And and I want to highlight this particular statement here from from, uh, verse 41. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And this is a a crucial point in this verse that we just need to look a little deeper. In God's divine providence, there is an this is an important aspect to the fact that this was a brand new tomb. It had to be. It had to be. Why? Because an old tomb would mean that there would be other people's remains in there already. This would be important because three days later at the resurrection, there would be no complications, there will be no confusions created by the presence of other bodies in the tomb. Because if there were other deceased in there, there would be long-time permanent residents in the grave. But for Jesus... This tomb was not a home, but more like a temporary hotel. On the third day, he was gone. The disciples and the women, they will come and they will discover that the tomb was indeed what? It was empty. It was empty. There was no room for doubt or confusion. No DNA test was needed 
for confirmation. Only Jesus' body, only his body was laid in that grave. And soon the grave will have a vacant sign on it once again. At the same time, let us also ponder on the fact that all but one generation of God's people, those who will be alive when he eventually returns, those who are alive when he does return, everybody else will have to go down with him into the grave. Everybody else will experience death except one glorious generation who will see him coming. And that glorious day, perhaps that is coming sooner rather than later. For now, let's remember that it's Friday. It's preparation day, but Sunday is coming. But Sunday is coming. May God bless us. May he continue to equip us. May he encourage us. May he, may he build us up to stand up for him. May he prepare us for greater service in his kingdom. Amen.